Good morning, Life Community Church. Uh, my name is Eric Yoon. I play here on the worship band. Um, this morning's scripture reading will be reading from Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Um, so as you guys are turning there, I uh, just wanted to share with you a little bit about myself. My family and I moved up here from Orange County seven years ago. Uh, we've been attending Life Community Church for six years, and um, every Sunday it's just amazing to be able to see the transformation that has taken place here. Um, we didn't have a whole lot when we started coming here, uh, here at Life Community Church. Um, the children's ministry was bare bones. Uh, we didn't have a youth ministry. Um, the band was very much an acoustic type of set. Um, and to be able to see it come all the way through to what it is now, um, it's an amazing blessing. And uh, with that, I want to encourage you uh, this morning to allow yourself to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Um, sometimes there are hard realities to face with that, but through those struggles and through the fire, we can be forged into uh, better people. And uh, there's no greater good than the Lord's influence over our lives. So with that, here's the words alert. Lord's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and we saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and take care, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. We get to gather together, open God's word. It's great to be back. Got to get away up to Hume and got out on the lake. When I was in eighth grade, getting the freedom to get on a boat and then struggle with those oars, I was able to finally put those childish behaviors behind me and get that massive trolling motor hooked up to that 12-volt battery. It's great. We jump in, I start going, and I, I have this thing straight navigating us towards the dam, and the boat just veers right into shore. So I'm there working it, trying to keep us straight, and my buddies. Through God's grace and mercy, he saved him, and I was, I was able to be a part of that. And so he's now in Texas, retired Coast Guard. And he's like, hey, I don't want to be, you know, just point out the obvious here. I, I did this for a living. 
I, I could go back. You done messing around? Like, I'll, I'll, I'll drive the boat. It's like, no, just be quiet. Enjoy the view. Let me figure this out. So we made it to the dam, caught a bunch of fish. It was great. And as I think about that, you know, when you're on the water, it's great. You're on a boat. It's wonderful. Usually it's calm. It's awesome. But if you've ever been in a boat before, especially a couple times as I have, and the boats aren't always like the nicest top of the line. Sometimes there's like a plug that's kind of key that's there. And sometimes that might be forgotten to be put back. And all of a sudden there's some water down by your feet. And that water is supposed to be outside of the boat, not in the boat. And if you've ever thought, like anxious, like, man, those giant cruise ships, what happens when water gets in the boat? I never realized that there's a certain amount of water that does get in a boat, and there's pumps that pump the water back out. So the question for us today is, your life, are you sailing in the sea, or are you sinking? Have you been taking on water? Has there been parts where you may be compromised, and there's ideas and ideology that's come in, and you've, you've allowed them to start sinking your life. And you're, maybe you don't even realize it. And all of a sudden you wake up and there's just this weight on you. And where would that come from? Oh, I was taken on water. I had no clue. As, as followers of Christ, we, we must live in the world but not be full of it. So we look around. Are, you, are your lives full of the world that so much so you stop sounding like Jesus? You stop looking like Jesus. And eventually you stop thinking like Jesus. And that's the consequence of allowing the world to fill our lives as a ship that will sink us. As a ship, we're supposed to live in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, it goes down to the bottom. So Christians, we must live in the world, but if the world gets into them, into us, we sink. All around the world, we see different ideas on abortion. This great documentary came out. Someone heard about Roe v. Wade and documentary. Filmmaker produced it. One night only, because it got damaged apparently, so it couldn't be shown on Tuesday night. A Galaxy Theater did a great job revealing all of the originators of pushing forth that and how they came to realize, man, we were about genetic modification and population control and all these different agendas and how they came to see the reality that it's murder. But a lot of pro-life pastors are out there and there's more and more pro-choice pastors saying, no, 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 you can believe in abortion, it's fine. They're allowing the world, they don't want to hurt feelings. And critical race theory continues to, to borrow language, and as believers, it's like, how do we navigate this? Because there's some terms that we can share, but, but inevitably it's, it's this idea that you're always in sin. You've always committed something instead of the gospel saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Critical race theory would say because of your race or gender, you're always committing an offense and you always need to apologize. And there's no removal of that. Your economic status, are we really going to allow ourselves to be puffed up because of where we were born, the job we have, to think that we're something? We see homelessness rising around us. Are we, are we broke? As we see that, are the needs around us, do we go, man, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Thankfully, I have a job and a house. Man, I'm awesome. Civil rights, Marxism, amazing to see the history there that he never had a blue-collar job, but yet was claimed to be for the people. Didn't even know that lower class, was always in schmoozing with the upper class. And yet, we see here with this, what's called a parable, but Luke never calls it a parable. It's a story he tells to help as Luke writes to Theophilus, a young believer, and he writes to us, many of us are young believers, and even me, I wrestle with this going, man, 
This is some hard stuff that Jesus never allows us to just see a VeggieTales cartoon and think about a Good Samaritan and say, okay, how are we going to be Good Samaritans? That wasn't why he shared this. The reason was that God's word exposes the reality that we're all in sin. And that even when we think we should do something, it's like his language as a lawyer, you think he would be concerned and very, very just careful with every word that comes out of his mouth, but he says, what must I do to inherit? Last I checked, you don't do anything to inherit. You are born into a family or you're adopted into a family. Inheritance does not equate a wage. And so many in the, in the church are transformed by Christ and, and renewing our minds through Scripture and we're new creations and then there's a world that's hurting and lost and often says, hey, I have this, this thought and can we walk together? And it's like, well, we share some ideas, but is it God's word? Is it the gospel? Is it the pure gospel? And here, oftentimes when you read scripture, you share the gospel, many people are offended. And the, and the reason why they're offended, because they, they don't submit to God's word. They're saying, hey, I'm okay hearing about it and I'm okay kind of deciding and defining terms and deciding if I want to live that way or not. But it's really up to me because a study was done that showed 83% of people who call themselves Christians don't have a biblical worldview. So 17% of Christians who consider their faith important and attend church regularly actually have a view of the world based on Scripture. 17%. That's higher than I thought. Looking at the world and looking at the church, I was like, wow, that's, that's higher than I thought. We're, we're confused because we're so easily like ships taking on water. We assume the pump's pumping water back out, but we're not going to God's word. In Acts, when Paul shared the gospel, the Bereans were like, hold up, time out. I don't know. I don't like this. This doesn't feel good to me. I'm going to go back to God's word and see if it's true. That's not really the case today. The nationwide survey showed that Christian pastors, the majority of pastors lacked a biblical view of the world. Only 37% had a view of the world that was based on scripture, which meant 63% held the Samaritan's view of the world. The Samaritan's view of the world was syncretism. I'll allow Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, but the rest of it's, yeah, I don't really like David and the prophet. Like, dude, who wants to read about Ezekiel's prophecies? Like, dude, that guy was tripping. He was on opium for sure, like spinning alien things. Like, we have to wait till 2022 for Congress to release some concealed documents on aliens. Like, we're not reading Ezekiel. That was why the Jews hated the Samaritans. First off, they married some hot women that God told them not to. They intermarried with the Assyrians. And then they were worshiping other gods and they were killing babies, sacrificing them to Baal. So the Jews were like, no, you're my enemy. I don't like you. You're worshiping other gods. Modern religion focuses us purely and solely on filling churches with people. The goal is to get people here to give money and then we can do things and have programs and they can sit in seats. The gospel we preached, the only word from God was that Jesus came and emphasizes that when Jesus came, the Holy Spirit can fill people. So A.W. Tozer says this, the true gospel emphasizes filling people with God. That's the difference. When you go into a church or you hear a pastor, if it's all about building and come versus God's in you, now go and allow his love to flow through you. There's a distinct difference there. 
In religion, here we see the lawyer say, what must I do? Where must I go? And how do I do it to inherit this eternal life? When you have God's word in you, you know what life God has called you to. We, we know the scriptures. The Holy Spirit reveals them to us. This veteran researcher from Barna explains it's just further evidence that the culture is influencing the American church much more than the Christians in churches are influencing the culture. Their ships are sinking and they're okay with it because they're looking so much like the world, you can't tell if there's a ship anymore. It's just hovering at the edge of the water before it sinks and submerges. The study found that only 12% of children and youth pastors hold a biblical worldview. That also, not shocking to me at all. When I went to Bible college, I was amazed at how many people wanted to be youth pastors and kids pastors because they could like watch Family Guy and play video games and they'd go into ministry. I'm like, whoa, what? You, you want to live just like the world, like all my buddies who aren't wanting to pursue a ministry calling and you want to live just like them. A person's worldview is primarily shaped, the researchers have done the, the work on this, before the age of 13. And many of you will probably nod your head. Yeah, when I was 13, I pretty much had my rudder set. I pretty much had that trolling motor pegged on the dam. And then, like most middle school, high school, early 20s, that trolling motor starts wiggling around and you start having some kind of doubts, thoughts. Is this my parents' faith? Is this my faith? Is God really real? And the worldview is shifted a little bit. And it's no wonder that seven out of eight pastors lack this biblical worldview and helps explain why this nation's young next generation doesn't view God's word with any authority and they have their own view of the world based on what the world is saying. So as we look at this, you're like, man, Brandon, where are we going? This is the culture that Jesus was in. This is the exact culture where you have the same enemies drawing lines every day on any kind of issue and if we're truly full of God, then we're going to be loving like God loved us. And his love is going to flow through us. We're not going to compromise on truth, but we're going to be so loving that it's hard for people because they're going to be so angry and attack. And we're just going to say, hey, I love you. And, and what is this? We're going to take Jesus' approach. The teacher says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't call him out on the bad kind of earn eternal. He doesn't do that. He just says, okay, you want to, you want to go to task? Lawyer? And he asks him a question. And so often, as Christians, we have our selfish plans, we have our purpose, we have our plan, and that gets in the way from accomplishing God's purpose and seeing his plan take root in our lives. So we see these three, these three points out of, out of here that are going to hopefully make a difference in how we love like Jesus. The first is the question, what must I do? And how Jesus responds. The second is the neighbor. Who's my neighbor? I live in this amazing country club, Jesus. I got neighbors everywhere. They always go on vacations for like weeks, months at a time. I got to take care of their lawn. Then they take care of mine. So how many neighbors do I got? Because I got 613 laws. Why not one more? Just help me define this. And then thirdly, the response, go and do likewise, shows us that the good part we talk about in, in week two of our series, the good part, is that God doesn't desire your good works. He's not expecting waiting on your good works to benefit only you but more importantly, to meet the needs of your neighbor through your good works, which many of you are like, I can't do. Yeah, because you don't have God's love in you to flow through you. That's the gospel. And the world wants to 
explain how you can do good and get good, but you can't unless God's in you. So the question, he's like, I can't, I'm a lawyer, I study the law, how do I do it, what must I do? The desire's there, he comes to Christ seeking the way to heaven. And like many in our day today, they want to find heaven on earth. Up at Hume Lake, I was talking to Adam Weatherby, and he's like, man, all these people coming to Wyoming from California, Oregon, Montana, they just are escaping. They're, he's like, we have to push back. They, they come with their tanks and their sniper rifles, and they do the perimeter security, and then they just want this, like, us four, no more, homeschool, where we've escaped all the craziness. And he's like, no, the gospel's the commandment was to go to the ends of the earth, not come to Wyoming and just build a bomb shelter. That's not, that's not the goal. That's not what we read in Scripture here. Remember, come under authority, under authority, have a biblical worldview. He's like, you don't have that. I'm like, no, we do. We have people moving here. They're just not as bold as, as the people that go to Wyoming because we haven't sacrificed California yet. We just go out of northern or southern and come here, and it's the same tone. People are like, oh, we're here. I'm glad we're voting this way. No, that's Jesus is why we're here. Not that. Our hope is in Jesus. And we see that the lawyer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the incredibly important question. We all, what is eternal? What lasts forever? We always want to invest in something that will last. No one gets excited about going cheap on something. Oh, it's going to break in a week. Great. I'm glad I spent my money on that. We want eternal life that's supposed to be the life we were intended to live without sin, in relationship with God, experiencing the fullest possible state, experiencing that relationship, that intimacy, and that satisfaction of walking in purpose with Christ. The lawyer was right. He was wanting the eternal, and he knew you had to inherit it, but he was confused on how to inherit. He thought you had to work for it. How many of you, how many of you have shared the gospel or have held that view? I need to work for it. I need to earn it. You're smarter and stronger than me. I knew I had no hope. Like from as early age, I was like, there's no way I'm getting in. My grades aren't good enough, and that guy runs faster, and I'm just not... You know, I can compete. I had a couple good basketball games, but I could not put up enough points. Like, I was just not there. But others of you, I'm like, wow, you're, you're going to nationals. You're going to state. You're going to worldwide competitions, rodeo, fishing, motocross, school. Like, you have an 8.0 GPA. I'm like, wow, they had to invent classes for you to, like, get better grades. That's awesome. Can you write a book? And I'll, I'd love to read it sometime. That'd be, I might need to reread it a couple times to understand, but I'll get there. And that's amazing that God created us in his image, male and female. So we sinned against him. That's why Jesus has this conversation. He takes him to task, but he does it in a loving way. He doesn't say, you're an idiot, you call yourself a lawyer, rephrase that sentence and submit the paper. I'll look at it when I have time. He says, hey, and he gives us the example. Luke is saying, Theophilus, Luke is saying, Life Community Church, here's how you share the gospel with your kids with your family members who are intellectually inclined, you question them. You lovingly say, hey, you, you bring up a good point. Let's look at that, that word that you think you're going to live for. Let's look at that. He says, what is written in the law? Let's talk about the law. How do you read it? I'll never forget when I understood that and God gave me the gift of evangelism. How do I evangelize to a world that doesn't want to hear? And I'm not that cool or good at speaking but I can ask questions. Hey, what does that mean to you? Hey, how do you read that? And then let the Holy Spirit work. So as the Holy Spirit works, he realizes, oh, inheritance is a gift, but he goes into the law. 
And he says, okay, the demand of the law is this, love God with all your heart, all of your desire. Can you sit here today and say, yep, done. Man, from an early age, all I desired. I mean, I was gifted in some things, but really I desired God and allowing God to use my talent, fishing, hunting, fixing things, riding horses, doing whatever. Like, did your heart really desire? No, I failed there. Love God with all your soul. My spiritual longing, was that always filled? No, I loved the dark spirits and scary movies and different things. Like I had an open spiritual. It wasn't always content and satisfied with Christ and loving God with all your strength, all your physical love. I'm lazy. I like to chill out. I like to surf. I don't know if I want to give all of my effort to going and hanging out with a homeless person. I don't want to know if I want to give all of my effort to earn something, to give it away to someone in need. Are you kidding me? I, I have hobbies that I need to invest in. I have things I need to Bill, I'm not going to give that to someone who's in need. My, my strength, all for God. Now, some of you are like, dude, that guy's a loser. We need to pray for that pastor. I'm doing pretty good on this test. The last one, though, all of your mind. Jesus says, really, you love the Lord your God? Let's talk about the law. You love the Lord your God with all of your mind? Every single thought? The moment you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, God, thank you for getting me up. Hey, I got a lot of stuff to do. Like, right away, your feet hit the floor, it's all you. And then at the end of the day, it's like, man, my whole day didn't work out. It fell apart. And thinking about it now is all about me, really. Oh, man, that one person needed something, and I totally blew him off. I could have used that. Sorry, Lord. So he's like, okay, let's go to the, t how does that read? How does that sound to you? You think you can do that? And he says, you, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. How many of you have memorized that? It just rolls off your tongue and the weight of it maybe escapes you. Jesus slows it down. Hey, what does that mean? How do you read that? Let's go back to the law. Galatians 2, 16, 21, 321. Paul's saying, you guys, the law shows you're in sin, and you need a Savior. The law tells you all the things you have to do. Not that you should do if it's convenient, but that is required of you, and you can't do it until Jesus says, I've already done it for you. Because the law shows us we need to be saved. The law shows us we are in sin, but now we're forgiven. We were sinners, but now we're saints. Only because a transaction occurred between Jesus and we received it. That he paid for our sin on the cross. And that conversion only comes with conviction and realizing I'm in sin. I'm selfish. It must really be a struggle to be married to me. Because I don't do what I say I'm going to do. And I do the things I say I'm not going to do. What's wrong? And, and Paul's like, dude, you're messed up, but so am I. I do the same stuff. Thankfully, Jesus saved me and saved you. And he writes to the, in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's exactly what the lawyer was trying to do. He's like, okay, touche. I can't do those things maybe, but you, you talk about your neighbor. And so he tries to justify himself. And it says, and he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. In verse 29, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he's like, okay, I'll, I'll do those things. I'm, I'm good. And Jesus says, cool, do it. And he's like, I got I to gotta look good because Jesus kind of showed me up because everyone knows I can't do that. My wife's sitting here shaking her head going, dude, this guy's full of it. He's, he's not done that last week. He's not going to do it this week. So he's like, all right, I got a lot of neighbors in my country club. Who's my neighbor? Like, is it five deep? 
you know, on either side of me and then just across the street, like that's 10, maybe 15 houses, my neighbors I could take care of, their yards and their chickens or, or their dogs. You know, the Labradoodles are super nice, so I'll take care of those. He's like, okay, Jesus, help me out. Like what neighbor, what's the, what's the, what's the quantifier here? He's pretty bold. Instead of humbly saying, all right, I surrender, he's like, all right, I'm going to justify myself. Paul's like, don't even try. You, you can't do that. The law shows that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Just leave it there. But he, justify, he tries to justify himself and wiggle out of this predicament using an age-old debate tactic, which, again, I'm not that smart. So whenever I see debaters or, you know, the oral tradition and the skill of communicating, I'm like taking all these notes going, that's amazing how they put those words together. And, and so he's like, okay, I'm going to define neighbor. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to put it on you, define it, and we can, we can argue around that in theory. So what must I do is the first question. The next is, okay, let's talk about what a neighbor is. So Jesus is like, all right, I'll help you understand. Let's talk about this Samaritan. The worst thing we can do with this parable is turn it into an allegory. He, and he jumps into the Samaritan. He says, hey, there's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls in these robbers, stripped naked, beat him up, left him half dead. Verse 31, by chance, thankfully, a priest was going down the road. And they're like, oh, sweet, a priest. And uh, when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Now, the priest probably had a purpose that day and didn't have time to be interrupted. And he's like, hey, I saw the Levite leaving the temple earlier. He'll, he'll take care of him. And the priest steps aside and goes. And, and then the next... Likewise, a Levite comes, and he comes to the place, sees him, and is like, either that's gross, i got to go to the temple earlier, later and make sacrifices, I can't be unclean, got to uphold the law, and Levite, and so he, he steps aside, and he's praying, he's like, I'm going to pray for him, that God would help him, and so he goes, and then Jesus says, and all the Jews would have been like, ah, oh, the third, right, because Jews love numbers, and one, two, three, so like, the third guy, this is the hero, this is Superman, he's going to come and save the day, and boom, the Samaritan is Superman, their minds explode, and they have like a seizure, like, what? Samaritan? No! They don't believe half the Bible. They have all these other gods they sacrifice their babies. How could we? No, he can't touch a Joe. Oh, my goodness. And he's like, yeah, and actually, he not only like helped him, but he poured oil and, and wine on him, put him on his horse even, took him to the, the innkeeper, gave him two denarii, and said, hey, any other charges, I'll come back and take care of it. He's like, oh. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It's not just taking labradoodles, taking care of your neighbor's labradoodles when they're on vacation. This is deep. This is identity. This is when you're going for the promotion. Are you going to hang out with the guy that, that everyone, or the woman that is going to give you a bad reputation at work and, and maybe cost you that promotion? Are you going to prioritize your life in a way that is going to cost you something? And, he's, and the lawyer says, well, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Again, the worst thing we can do here is just turn it into a little Veggie Tales allegory. We all be good Samaritans. Because what happens when you do that is called eisegesis. We read into it what we emotionally want to get out of it or what we intellectually want to be assured of, and that's not necessarily true in Scripture. So the victim becomes the lost sinner who's half dead, alive physically and dead spiritually, hopelessly left on the road of life. The priest and the Levite represent the law and sacrifices, neither of which can save the sinner. So when we have this eisegesis and you read into the text to make you feel good and go, okay, this is what I need to do. Again, Jesus wasn't saying you need to do this. He's saying, look at how messed up and broken your view of the world is. The world's gotten into you. Your, your life is a sinking ship. 
It's not about what you can do. It's about what I'm going to do for you. And for us believers, it's not about what we can do. It's what Jesus already did for us. Because the Samaritan in the allegory is Jesus who saves the man, pays the bill, promises to come again. The in stands for the local church where believers are cared for, and the two denarii are the ordinance of baptism and communion. Again, those things are all true in their way, but to say that, that that's what Jesus was trying to do, a backflip and side twist and get, like that's not true of the text. So if we're going to have a worldview that Scripture introduces that scripture informs that scripture directs and the holy spirit guides it has to be okay jesus why are you telling us this and luke why did you organize that the first week of the good part was our names are in in heaven and number two it's not what we can do it's what jesus already did for you and now that we have god's love in us we can go allow his love to flow through us through our good works and the truth is it reveals his heart towards his enemy he wanted to justify, be like, I'm the lawyer, I know it all, I memorized all this, I got it. And Jesus is like, good, you memorized it, but do you live it? No, you can't live it because you don't love it. You don't love God. You don't love his people, you don't love the enemy who's coming after you. Later on, Paul writes, and you're like, dude, Brandon, why did you talk about all those hard topics? Because Jesus did. This is literally one of the most, as historians and commentators, like this is such a politically charged narrative. They think that on the road to, to Jerusalem, there have been probably in recent times muggings, beatings, murders that occurred. And so he goes, hey, remember that George Floyd incident? A few years, remember that? How politically charged that was? Suppose this, and he jumps into this narrative, and everyone's like, oh my, how is he bringing that up? Jesus, tone it down. You're supposed to take over the world. What are you doing? Why are you bringing up such a politically charged ideology. He says, look, the world is so messed up and broken and fractured, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. I've come to proclaim the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God but through me. And then we'll talk about feeding the homeless, and then we'll talk about clothing the naked, and then the hospitals, and then the schools. The church started all that. If you look in history, the, the, the history of Princeton and all these major universities, that was a church. You look at all these St. Jude hospitals, that was the church. And then the church said, actually, let's just take on some water. World, you take it over. World, you, you influence it. World, you, you control it. We'll just go and maybe sometimes we'll point out a verse that helps us. The worldview has been compromised by the world. And so we have to have Jesus as center and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us and help those in need. Because it's much easier to maintain a religious system than it is to improve the neighborhood. That's such a well-traveled road. Commentators were like, why wouldn't they, they put security guards on the road? Why wouldn't they do this or do that or, or vote in a new king or dictator or someone to control that and, and improve the, the, the transit journey? But it's easier to just talk about religion. It's easier to talk about theories of, oh, what if we did this or how could we do that and let's meet and talk but not actually love. And so Jesus was saying, no one's going to love one another because they're not loved by God. And we haven't allowed ourselves to be loved by God because we want to be loved by the world. And he's saying, look, you keep talking about these theories and want to look like the world, talk like the world, you're going to be of the world then. But Jesus calls us out of the world, and he says this, go and do likewise. He's saying, look, you need to go 
and show them my love. But first, you need my love in you. First, you need to be transformed. You need to be saved. And then you can go and live different. And the world's going to take notice. And it's amazing because it ends there. And that's where I think many of us are here today. We have a friend. We have a family member. We have a son or daughter. And we're like, man, I, I want them to know Jesus. Do we know that the lawyer was like, Jesus, you're my savior. All, we, we have it open-ended. It's in process. We don't know exactly where he ended up. We hope and pray he was like, oh, I get it. I'm saved by grace through faith. It's an inheritance. It's not a paycheck. I'm adopted into the family now, and I can go freely love as I've been freely loved. I can freely forgive as I've been freely forgiven of much. And this affection now, I desire to love my enemy. As Paul says, hey, if your enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. And you're going to put burning holes on, burning coals on his head. You're like, yeah, okay, I like that. You have certain enemies, like, I'm not giving him something to, oh, burning coals are involved? Perfect. Here, you want a gallon? Here, here's a couple gallons of water. Anymore? And we, we realize, oh, my heart is actually not kind toward my enemy. I'm not praying for them that are persecuting me. I'm wishing ill on them. And that's where the church has to wake up and go, okay, we can't play the game with the world's rules. We can't use their tactics. Jesus came to say, look, this purpose is way above what you're distracted by down here. All these fractions and all these consequences of sin, the only answer is Jesus. And we have to keep our eyes fixed on that, focused on him, and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us so that we can go love like he loved us. And the lawyer would have known in Exodus 23, Leviticus 19, and then after that he wouldn't have, you know, the Sadducees, or the Samaritans wouldn't have believed it, but the lawyer would have. Micah 6.8, the prophet, Micah 6.8 writes, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. He would have known that, but he didn't live it. And that's the difference. If we're taking on water, you know things, but you're not living it. But if you're a ship sailing on the sea of life, being an example and a light to a dark world, then you're going to live justly. You're going to love mercy and you're going to walk humbly. And Jesus is saying, that only happens if I save you, if I transform you, if my spirit's in you. So wisely, Jesus turns the tables on the lawyer, trying to evade responsibility. The man asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus asked, which of these three was the neighbor to the victim? The big question is, how do we love others? only with the love that God has put in us. So are we filling ourselves up daily? Are we drinking deep of God's word to make sure, even though sometimes it feels good, and it's hard, getting up here week after week, and sometimes Luke puts stuff together, and like, man, this is really politically, culturally charged, but that's how Jesus, he doesn't let us get off the hook. He exposes, even when we think we're doing good, he's like, yeah, you're, you're nothing. I need to save you. I need to be your savior. You have to completely come undone, completely fall on me as your Lord and savior. And then I'll, at the right time, I'll raise you up and I'll give you feet and I'll walk you into your purpose. And you're gonna walk with me and it's gonna be amazing. And you're gonna suffer because anyone that wants to live a godly life is gonna suffer and it's gonna be great. And you're gonna go, wait a minute, the suffering part, I didn't see that in the fine print. Is that real? Oh, it's really in here. Okay, I guess if you're with me, then I'll walk I'll walk with you, but you better not. Okay, you said you'll never leave me or forsake me. I'm, I'm good then, but I'm gonna hold you to that promise. God does not desire your good works to benefit only you, but more importantly, to meet the needs of your neighbor through your good works. Jesus said when they see those good works, they'll glorify God. 
So when we're out caring for the homeless, when we're out praying for people, and we see someone at work, and we go to them and encourage them, the goal is that they'd see God in us. But you can't forgive people who've sinned against you unless you've been forgiven of sin. And the two problems we're facing, the faced the lawyer, everyone wants to talk about love and truth. What do I need to do? Love God. What's really true? Live your truth. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. And so we have to, as a church, recognize the whole New Testament was written to new believers, to us, saying this is what truth is. This is what it means to stand up in a very polarized, divisive, aggressive culture that is going to cost you, but you're going to do it in love. And you're going to share your truth in love. We're not called to go and to save everybody. We're, co- we're called to go and proclaim that Jesus saves all who call upon him. And we're sent out to go proclaim that message wherever we go. And whenever there's an enemy or a neighbor, even if it is a truly you know, physically close neighbor who's against you, it's like, okay, opportunity to love them. They're angry, they're bitter. How do I love them in this? You may have things against you, but you won't have anything to live for unless you first know Jesus and that he's in you, empowering you, sending you out. One of my favorite D.L. Moody stories illustrates this so perfectly. He was attending this this conference in Indianapolis, and he finds a singer, and he's like, hey, meet me at this corner, 6 o'clock, and the singer shows up, and it was obviously back in the day before phones, so you couldn't just listen to anything on Spotify. So a live singer, you're like, this is great, listen to the singer. And then Moody gets in and starts sharing, hey, you're in sin, come into the opera house, we're going to tell you about Jesus and how he can save you. So they all pile in, they're like, oh, great, cool, we're going to hear this great story. So he shares with them the gospel, and about the time he's wrapping up, the attendees of this conference start trickling in. He says, hey guys, we got to go, uh, so all these, these pastors and people can, can argue and debate on how to reach the masses. And it's an amazingly beautiful picture that the church is supposed to be on the move. It's supposed to be going out and proclaiming the message. And some of you are going to be able to deal Moody's and get a whole park full of people. Others of you, you're going to get one person over the next 10 years, and that's what God's prepared you to reach, that person. It's not about numbers. It's about you being obedient to go where he's called you to go. Someone came up to him and was like, D.L. Moody, I don't like how you, how you preach the gospel. He said, I agree. I don't like how I preach the gospel often as well, but I like my way better of preaching the gospel than your way of not. And that hit me because it was like, okay, I have that gift and I've seen God use it, but I, I don't like how I use it sometimes and I'm not sure it's working, but I better just keep using it because it's way better than not. And when people squirm or qualm, they're like, I don't know if I like it. It's like, hey, I know. I don't know if I like it either, but I'm supposed to do it. I'm supposed to use it, and this is what God's called me to do. And it's way better to share the gospel than not. And Podge was sharing with me about a friend he had, and he would leave tips after a meal. You're like, oh, what's special about that? The tip was a printed $100 bill on one side, and on the back it was this a couple verses about how they're in sin going to hell, and they need to trust in Jesus. Um, so they're called tracks. When I was a kid, I heard them. I thought they were checks. So I was like, that's a different evangelism move. Like, just give out blank checks to people. Um, can I get one first? Like, <laughs> is that, can we try it out, make sure it works? And, uh, and so I always was, obviously, my way of sharing the gospel, I don't, I don't like that. It's very relational. It's right here in the text. I'm not that smart. Like I told you, it's, this is what Jesus did. He asked questions. 
What does this verse say to you? Hey, let's read this verse about God's love. What does that say to you? That's, that's how God's led me to share the gospel, and I've seen amazing fruit from the Holy Spirit using God's word to save people and me just asking questions. He leaves a, a, a blank piece. You know, there's no cash. It's just this piece of paper. You put yourself in so many stories you've heard about single moms struggling to put food on the table. They're waiting tables, and they pick up that piece of paper. What do you think they're going to feel? Oh, I'm so glad I get to know Jesus. No, whatever God this is, I don't want any part of it. This is not helpful. This is hurtful. I not only not have a tip, I'm more angry if there even is a God. We can do better as a church. We can do better as followers of Christ to meet the physical needs and do those good works that the world would take notice. And sometimes as Christians, we're like, dude, I don't have a lot of extra money to leave fat $300 tips when I go to Denny's is out of business. You have to go to like a local Jack's or something. But you don't have that. And you're like, okay, what do I do? Maybe you're in high school and you're like, that's cool, pastor. Maybe when I grow up, I'll be this like great Christian. I'll never forget when I was in high school and I don't remember all the details, but there was a kid that we remembered from middle school and he had a lot of challenges and disabilities and everyone would make fun of him. And, and he kind of was like nicknamed T-Rex because he would kind of run around and his, his hands were deformed and and when he would grab your wrist, he would lock on and he wouldn't let go. And he was smart enough to know when the bell was going to ring and he would just grab your hand and then the bell would ring and you couldn't go to class. And all your friends were like, ah, oh, sucker. And I felt, I was like, oh man, that poor guy. So I signed up to be a big buddy. And I'm thinking I would have this like cool jock, like famous motocross, rodeo, somebody I could be a big buddy for. And God's providence, he put me with him. And, and it was really interesting to see how many people came up after and were like, hey, like seeing you with that guy and how kind you are, it's really like encouraging. And I'm like, I did, that's not me. Like I didn't want that, I didn't hope for that. That's something that God is working and growing in me to care for him. But it was cool to see his, his walls break down and, and how he was so insecure and anxious that that's how he had to get attention because the world was so cruel and mean and wouldn't slow down enough to get to know his name and to get to know his story. And I wonder how many people like that are in our lives or in our businesses. And we're so busy like the Levite or, or like the priest. And, and Jesus is saying, look, if I'm in you and I have filled you with my love, who around you needs to know my love? And it's awkward and it's hard, but are you able to just to ask some questions? Hey, how's your life going? Hey, waiter, how, how are you doing? You seem a little weighed down today. Can I pray for you? It's not the, fu the funds we give. It's the forgiveness of Jesus that we need to offer that they can receive. And so as we live in the world, knowing the world's trying to weigh us down, take us out, reminded that God's love is what keeps us afloat and God's love leads us to those who need to know his love. And today I wanna, I wanna challenge us a little bit as a church. We're not here as individuals to then scatter to the world without first being prayed up in the power of Christ to go and love a hurting and lost world. Some of you are gonna go crazy places. It's amazing how many times I connect with you and you're like, oh, we haven't been here because we've been like all over the nation or all over the state or all over the county with different, like how many people saw you? They're not gonna read the Bible. They're not gonna hear me preach, but they're gonna see your life. And the majority of people are reading your life going, hey, is that, is that person full of God's love or are they full of the world? And so I wanna encourage us as we leave, you need to be prayed up here 
And maybe you're bold enough and you're broken enough to stand up and let the elders come alongside you and lead you into the throne room. You can do it on your own. It's not super special to be here and do this, but this is why we gather, is to pray for one another, hear the word, praise God for what he's done, but I wanna make sure we have time to pray before we go off into our places and purposes that God's prepared for us to do. So we're gonna give it a, a few minutes and we've got elders in the back. So if you just stand up where you are, we'll just pray for you. And if you see someone being prayed for, uh, it's not weird or awkward, just raise your hand up if you're a believer and you could pray over them as well. But I just wanna give a, a moment and then I'll come up and close this in communion.